as an Indigenous researcher, you are expected to be everything and nothing at the same time. It's really navigating, like, I think, all of that. It's really hard and there's just so much weight on your shoulders all the time. Diamonds are made under pressure. <laughs> Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Where are our basic human rights? Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Too much white noise, white, white, white noise! Welcome to White Noise, the podcast of the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub. You just heard our theme song by John Wayne Parsons. I'm speaking to you from the grounds of the Melbourne Law School on Wurundjeri country in Nam. I offer respect to elders past and present and all Indigenous people joining us, listening at this time of ongoing work and fight for strong cultural futures under colonisation. To share a bit of myself before my name, a practice you'll hear taken up in this discussion, I'm a woman who is the only child to wonderful parents, hi mum and dad, a granddaughter to a most loving Anglo-Indian nana, a research fellow at the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub, and my name is Jenea Dwyer. It is a joy to have a research job at a university. I'm new to it and so grateful to be employed to do so much learning and reflection and meaningful conversations with colleagues and students. But boy, do these sandstone buildings carry a lot of weight. What comes to mind for you when you hear the word research? Professor Linda Tuiwai-Smith, a Natiawa and Nati Pro woman and researcher, famously writes in the foundational text, Decolonizing Methodologies, Research and Indigenous Peoples, that the word itself, research, is probably one of the dirtiest words in the Indigenous world's vocabulary. When mentioned in many Indigenous contexts, it stirs up silence. It conjures up bad memories. It raises a smile that is knowing and distrustful. It is so powerful that Indigenous people even write poetry about research. The ways in which scientific research is implicated in the worst excesses of colonialism remains a powerful remembered history for many of the world's colonised peoples. So what is it like grappling with this legacy for the growing number of Indigenous people working in universities? Today I'm speaking with two Māori women and researchers, Erin Roxburgh-Makia, who I first met last year when she arrived at the Hub as our visiting fellow, travelling from the University of Victoria, Wellington, in New Zealand. Through this arrangement, we were also lucky to meet our second guest in this conversation, Ethel Renata, who's Erin's mum. These women have been so generous with me. At the time we recorded this conversation, I didn't know much at all about Te Ao Māori. And subsequently, I've had this wonderful opportunity to learn a little bit more travelling to Aotearoa with a group of incredibly bright and thoughtful law students looking at Indigenous laws as part of their studies. Erin and Ethel speak about the way we as women and they as Māori women make ourselves invisible and are made invisible and working to claim space and voice. A large part of this conversation is about Indigenous languages and the rich concepts they carry within them. 
It is something that strikes most people who travel to Aotearoa, and that was certainly what our students reported, feeling delight and sometimes discomfort in light of all of the te reo Māori in use all around us. As Anglophones, they're not used to not understanding, and it reminded us all of the languages trying to be reclaimed across this land as a result of colonial violence. Ethel and Erin share with us about their experiences of claiming culture and language, and it reminded me of a poem one of my students shared by Ellen van Nerven, a Munanjali and Ugambe woman, who writes in English and Ugambe language. Nana, I wanted to speak to you in our language and tell you I love you. That verse will resonate with so many people, Indigenous people, and people otherwise colonised and feeling the push and pull of assimilation. For so many, as Fiti Harika, Māori playwright speaking with Jackie Huggins, said at Brisbane Writers' Festival last year, our mouths should be a different shape. This sense of longing and desire and reaching came through strongly in our conversations. My guests shared about expectations of Indigenous scholars, their work as educators, and how their experiences in education institutions were continuing to shape their identity as Indigenous women. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. So as is always our first question on this podcast, who are you? Who is your mob? And what are the values that drive you in your work? Uh, kia ora, ko Erin Rocks from Makia Tokungua. I'm a lecturer at Victoria Business School and also Ethel's daughter. Kia ora, ko Ethel Renata Tokungua. I'm Erin's mum and I'm so thrilled to be here today. I'm just going to share with you our pipiha, which is from Te Ao Māori. It's from the Māori world, and it is a way that we introduce ourselves and talk about where we are from and our tipuna. Ko Hikurangi Tuku Maunga, ko Waiapu Tuku Awa, ko Horota Ku Awa, ko Ngātipura Tuku Iwi, ko Tina Toka Tuku Marae, Ko Tairafati Aho. Ko te upoko o te ika a Maui, toku kainga inaene. Ko renata toku whanau, ko laino toku matua, ko tuahine toku whaia, ko Erin Roxburgh Makia toku tamahine, ko Thomas Roxburgh toku tama, ko Kevin Baines toku tane, uh, ko Ethel renata toku ingoa. Thank you for having us today. Kia ora koutou. Uh, I'm going to do the same. Mihi is my mum, but the one that I choose to do is not as long or as detailed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so kia ora tātou. Uh, ko hukurangi, te maunga, ko wāpu, te awa, ko tina toka te marae, ko te uruahia, te whānau, te hapu, ko Ngāti Porau, te iwi, ko Marco Roxburgh, toku papa, ko Ethel Renata, toku mama, ko Erin Roxburgh, makia, toku ingoa. So I think also just to break down our pipiha a little bit, 
when we go through it, you kind of always start by, I think mum said, locating yourself, but we mm. locate ourselves with the land, you know, which I think is something that's really common with Indigenous people. So in our pipiha, we always start by, well, I, and you did it in the same yeah. water too, I introduced my mountain, introduced my, so maunga, introduced my river, so my awa, my marae, so our kind of meeting house that we, we belong to, introduced our hapu, which is like the smaller version of an iwi, and then introduce our iwi, and then I introduce my mum and dad. But mum, talk, you talked about your mum and dad and your children as well in there. So always yeah. start with the land first, though, don't we? Yeah, so for, for us, when we talk about hikurangi being our maunga, that really is acknowledging hikurangi as an ancestor or a tipuna of ours. Our awa, our waterways, so again, that is a place where traditionally we would have used to gather food and to travel upon. So our awa is also seen as our, our ancestor. And I think for us, what that really shows is also our values around um, kaitiakitanga, how we take care of the land because we are really taking care of our ancestors. Mm. So they really are a part of who we are. And kaitiakitanga in English kind of, very broadly, loosely means kind of like guardianship or stewardship. So not ownership of the land, but like mum said, us taking care of our ancestors. Yeah. yeah. So how we would take care of a family member. So that is really how we see those features of the landscape that we live within. I also talked about Tairafati because that is the area sort of around Gisborne area on the North Island of Aotearoa and um, that is where our iwi is located. It's actually located in Ruatoria which is about two or three hours away from Gisborne. I also talked about where we currently live which is uh, Te Upoko or Te Ika Amawi People also call that Wellington. <laughs> and I refer to Te Upoko Te Ika Maui because that really relates to a story or Mataranga Māori knowledge that we have of how our country was found and it was fished up by Maui, who is also like a really important person in Te Ao Māori. And Te Upoko or Te Ika means the head of the fish. <laughs> I think also... Um... So to answer the second part of the question, so what values um, drive our work are actually quite embedded in, in the mihi mm. that we gave. Like I I think I always think about my values as, um, so there's two that I always try and live by and in anything I do, and one is um, manakitanga. So manakitanga is a Māori value, which kind of can loosely mean generosity, hospitality, but I always just kind of take it that's how I want to Live, like have the relationships in my life is bringing people along with me and being kind and empathetic and having, yeah, just kind of mutually respectful relationships. Yeah. And then I think another one would be whanaunatanga, which again is about like the interconnectedness of the world and of people and the environment. And I always just try and carry that through everything I do in my work, I guess. Is that what would you... What I would agree. Does? And I think one of the things that is embedded within our pipiha is our papa. So it does absolutely connect to uh, the environment and where we are from, but also who we are and how we are located within our whānau and acknowledging our ancestors and acknowledging who we are today and who is in our family. And I guess also acknowledging that 
you know, in the future we will be those ancestors. So really creating a legacy and a family tree that our future generations can also follow as well. Really, yeah, it demonstrates that richness of language here when you're explaining these these concepts. I'm sure there's so much more packed in there than what you kind of are translating as well. I was wondering if you could please tell us a bit, each of you, about your experiences growing up, how they inform who you are today. If you go first, Mom, because I think without speaking out of turn, I think you grew up in a very different Aotearoa New Zealand to, to what I grew up in. Yeah, absolutely. Before I mention that my whanau come from, or my family come from Gisborne, which is sort of a smaller city in the North Island of Aotearoa. And um, in the 1960s, there was something called the urban migration, where a lot of Māori moved and were encouraged to move into the major cities. So my parents chose to do that. And the society at that time is really encouraging of people to come to the city for better prospects, work-wise, for better life opportunities. And I also have decided to refer to this as quite a pody time. So pody means a very sad time as well. So my family, my parents did this with the very best of intentions. But I guess a number of things occurred and that was the fracturing of our whānau ties through distance, not through any kind of uh, dramas other than um, through distance. So Gisborne is about six or seven hours from Mm. drive from Wellington, so it's quite a difficult place to get to. So we were living in the city. Assimilation was part of the process or part of the way to success. Theoretically, you know, according to the dominant cultural group, which is Pākehā, and so... Pākehā means uh, non-Māori people. Yeah. So loss of language, it was better to be more like Pākehā than to be Māori. Language and cultural identity were things that started to fracture and definitely for myself losing those connections. There was, I think also at the time as well, I think you remember you saying that because a lot of Māori hadn't lived in cities... There was a, and because Māori did start to move into the cities, there was a lot of racism as well in the capital cities, wasn't there? When Nan and would have moved into the city, it was hard to find housing, and Māori often lived in very similar areas because of that yeah. levels of racism and the work that drew people into the cities, which I think came out of the, what's it called, the Manpower Act post World War II, where Māori were drawn into the cities to work in quite laborious factory work, mm. low paid, exposed to a lot of health and safety issues at yeah. work. Yeah, so the dream was sold, wasn't it? But it, it, it was quite different. Yeah, and I think that has been perhaps a common feature, really, of the colonisation for um, Indigenous peoples. And there is this lure of uh, potential possibility and success, but actually, in effect, the trade-off that you had to do for that was really quite high for my generation. So my mother was a native speaker of um, Te Rao Māori and when I reflect upon where we are today, I'm still extremely grateful to her for the way in which she brought us up. So we were brought up with kaupapa Māori ways of being in the world and I'm really grateful to her for that. Oh. Do <laughs> <Sorry>, you <laughs> want to add to that and carry through to your generation? Yeah, I think my experience is slightly different, but I, I do think in the last 20 years there's been a lot of change in Aotearoa, I would say, like being someone that is fair-skinned. 
through primary school, I used to get asked all the time, what percentage Maori are you? Or, you know, things like that. But then I, I do think even through high school, that was something that actually stopped. And I haven't been asked that for a long time now, you know, and I do think that while there is a lot of tension still, that being Māori is something that's being more and more celebrated today in Aotearoa. Mm. And I think that, you know, I'm very encouraged by and support, well supported um, even in my school to do what I'm doing. And obviously growing up with mum around me and Nanny Tua, you know, we always kind of had our tia Māori wrapped around us, whether, whether it wasn't necessarily always through language, but I do think through value, the values that we lived yeah. by and practices and tikanga that we had, didn't we always felt like a Māori woman, for sure, yeah. For me, growing up, it was very much about assimilating and really we did not also, um, in my education, didn't really encounter any stories of Māori at all, actually, even though I grew up down the road from a marae it wasn't our iwi though it was a different iwi but there was a marae a beautiful meeting house down the road from where I grew up so you know when I reflect back upon those times it was the way the world was it was also probably during that period of time or later through the renaissance period of trial Māori that I became more aware because I don't think that you're really aware you don't really know what you've lost Mm. And I think that is the thing that made me very aware when having my own children. It was like an awakening, really. And I think also a time period for me to be brave because Mm. uh, I think I was really conscious of perhaps not speaking out too much as a Māori woman. So you become quite invisible and you just kind of blend in with people. I'm thankful to the people who were brave in the Renaissance period, the period of uh, regenerational trial Māori and bringing that awareness, those pioneers. And I also look at my mother who did eventually become a teacher in a total immersion school. And by that time, though, I was in my 20s, so kind of moved out of that little bit of uh, sphere of influence. And could you each share with us a little bit about your experience and relationship to to Reo Māori, so Māori language? Yeah, you go first because, like, it's kind of... I think like a lot of people of <laughs> my generation, I'd say one of my biggest regrets is actually not learning te reo Māori from my nanny when she was alive, you know, because she was mm-hmm. a native speaker. But it's definitely something later in life, you know, I'm trying to put lots of effort into, into doing it and, you know, Again, thank you to all the people that went through language revitalization because in Aotearoa we're just so blessed with the amount of resources that we we have at our disposal to learn Te Reo Māori. So I'm definitely on my learning journey. I'm probably I wouldn't say I'm conversational, but but trying to be. But you know, like back home we have podcasts, or um, there's a wonderful book called Māori Made Easy. I was doing tutoring last year. I do think, though, one of the things that can be really tough is actually getting into Māori language classes, especially in the public sector now. It's almost become a requirement that people have kind of a level of competency. And so often Māori people like mum and I who are trying to reclaim our language are competing to get into Māori classes with the Pākehā people, Mm -hmm. which is, so you know, it's beautiful that people want to learn our language. Yeah, Yeah, but it is a funny feeling. So for me, really, growing up, I didn't really, the only time I really ever heard te reo Māori spoken at home was when my aunties would come and visit mm. or there was an elderly Māori gentleman who my mum would also um, speak in um, Māori to. I think she 
didn't share or speak to us in Te Reo Māori because, you know, there was really a strong prevalence in society at that time that the best language for us to learn was English. There was another language that we were also told that would help us if we wanted to travel in the world, and that was French. Yeah. You know, so that was kind of kind of interesting. And I really only started to learn Te Reo Māori when I went to college, and I learned it for a few years there, and that was a choice that I made as a subject really to study. But I guess a big part of that also was Hapahaka, so that's a Māori cultural group, and I think um, belonging to that, you got a real sense you were with other people who are Māori also, mm-hmm. and I think that made a big difference because growing up in the city, we were definitely in the minority, actually, at the time that I went to college. And I think, though, one of the things about learning languages is that you really need to be immersed in it and living with it. You know, I've tried many times in my life to learn Te Reo Māori, and actually with that comes its own set of trauma mm. as well because you also get judged by other people around the amount of Māori that you can mm. speak or can't speak. And so... For me to enter into the PhD and to really look at Hopapa Māori as my framework, I was really worried about, actually I've spent a lot of my life worrying about what people think, you know, am I Māori enough? I don't speak enough Māori, what will people think of me? I now understand that these feelings are really feelings of historical trauma and that there are many reasons why it's been difficult for me to to move forward juggling, I guess, the processes of colonisation and the voices of colonisation that are within my head. So I take on board a lot of responsibility for this myself, but actually I'm trying to reclaim that as well, not just as a PhD candidate or student, but also as um, a primary school teacher, I bring a lot more uh, Te Reo Māori into my classroom. I'm a lead teacher for place-based iwi learning within our school and so definitely within my classroom. I benefit from that, but so do my students because they are hearing the amount of Māori that I can speak and I have decided that even if it's a small amount, it's enough right now to share and to to pass that language on to other students. As a mother, how would you describe your approach to imparting culture on your own children? I would describe this as whakapapa, as kaupapa Māori, the knowledge that my mother shared with me. And I think it is through this journey of my research that I've really been able to, and I'm going to quote something that Erin said and that is about having the language having the language to describe what it is that my mother gave to me which was this beautiful gift of being Māori and having a Māori way Mm. of being in this world and I think and I hope that that is what I pass on to my own children and my mother was really a very strong Ngāti Pūrau woman I always feel her near. She's been passed away for some time, but I'm so grateful that Erin and Thomas got to know her. And I think identifying um, as Māori and being proud to be Māori and uh, to be a Ngāti Pūrau woman as well, for us to be proud of our iwi and to know where we are from and where our marae is and to say our pepeha and to be able to visualise our maunga and our awa and our marae and... The other thing that's really important also to me is valuing Erin and Thomas for who they are and what they have to bring. 
You are both currently undertaking PhD research at the same time. It's lovely. Exploring in different ways the conditions for Maori culture to thrive and be imparted on future generations. Can you tell us a bit, each of you, about your research project and your motivations to undertake a PhD? Well, my motivation has really come from my context of being a primary school teacher. But actually, when I think before that, really, I think about my life experiences and I think knowledge is power and I think the knowledge that I gathered really was through undertaking my master's and then really learning about the history of Aotearoa and then also looking more broadly at I guess the processes of colonization for many indigenous people and then sadly beginning to see that there are a lot of similarities and in fact I think it was really I guess you know an awakening like I it was a little bit of an epiphany in many ways and at the school I teach at there are not a lot of Māori students actually but it doesn't matter because whether you're Māori or not you know as a bicultural nation we have a responsibility to ensure that everyone is aware of the importance of Māori as tangata whenua of Aotearoa. So I guess those things were sitting in my head and my research question is really looking at how Māori student cultural identity can be nurtured through the use of digital technology in English medium primary schools. So we do have total immersion schools or kura kaupapa, but I teach in um, an English medium primary school, so that means English medium, English language is the medium through which we teach all our curriculum areas. And I just noticed actually working with Māori students in my classroom the prevalence of digital technology coming into our classroom and then how students were using that with their pipiha, which is what I shared at the beginning, and um, that really stimulated my PhD. I think I finished my master's and I felt like, oh, there's still something more I haven't <laughs> finished. Yeah. And Erin? My PhD is looking at, like the official title is, it's a multimodal study of governance in Māori organisations. So I video recorded board meetings from post-settlement governance entities to kind of look at, it basically looks at the ways in which Māori people layer te ao Māori into their kind of corporate governance style and what tensions um, exist there. And I think one of the key drivers for me is I always feel like this really burning need to contribute in lots of ways. And, you know, I just remember being an undergrad business student and in my honours year, actually one of my amazing academic mentors, Dr. Deborah Jones, gave me this article to read and I just remember it opened my eyes up so much. It was called I'm Comparing and Contrasting Management Styles written by Mika and O'Sullivan 2014. And I just remembered like, if I could write an article like this, you know, just contribute to sparking someone else's knowledge, I'd love to do that. And I was sitting in my job as a policy analyst and I was hating it and I felt like I just wasn't contributing to the world in the way that I wanted to. And so I went back to, well, you know, went forward to do my PhD and um, actually was my current supervisor, Dr. Jessie Pirini, who suggested that I look at governance because I have experience in governance and so it's something I can relate to with my research participants. But yeah, I'd say my main driver always in all of this is just contribution to knowledge. And people always ask me, oh, what is your PhD going to answer? And I was like, well, I hope it's not going to answer anything. I hope it will, you know, lead to more questions than someone else writing PhDs in this area. You've hinted perhaps at some of the challenges, but what are some of the, the challenges for people thinking about undertaking a PhD? 
challenges really can lie perhaps within yourself and your self-belief mm. really and I think to trust in your self around the topic that you are interested in because I think if you are interested if there is a research question and Erin really talked about what sparked her curiosity and also how it linked to an area that she was already familiar with and that is the same with myself and my own PhD and my research question definitely came out of my context and I think being brave you know is really important because so many times you are always kind of questioning yourself and to get good support around you is also really critical and if things aren't going right for you then to also be brave to try and find a solution rather than giving up I know that that is really can be quite a common challenge for many PhD students but I think no listen to the voices of your ancestors and I truly believe, you know, with some of the challenges that I've had, that there has been a strong sense of determination that has come through at times when I felt quite bleak. So I just believe that that is possibly my mother encouraging mm-hmm. me just to carry on and to keep going because she was a really strong Ngāti Poro woman. Yeah. I think um, some of the challenges specifically about being an Indigenous researcher are that Inherently in our research, we're multidisciplinary, right? And so, like, even if I think were to think about my topic, I am based in the School of Management at the Business School. But not only am I looking kind of at those, like, business theory and Western management theory, because I'm looking at EV entities, I've had to lay a governance on top of that. And then, you know, on top of that, look at the, the history and the context of the Treaty of Waitangi. So then that kind of adds an anthropological and sociological lens to it. And then also having to become a bit of like a little like legal expert in the treaty. And so mm. you have to be this multidisciplinary researcher able to go across different schools, which, as you can both probably appreciate, at a mm. university is really hard because our faculties don't always want to work together. Yeah. And I also think as an Indigenous researcher, you are expected to be everything and nothing at the same time, to be someone who can go and sit in at an iwi board meeting and be comfortable in that environment and then come back to university. But, you know, don't push back too hard when it doesn't suit mm-hmm. us. But could you be this Māori person when we need you to be? It's really navigating, I, I think, all of that as an Indigenous PhD student. It's really hard and there is just so much weight on your shoulders all the time, you know, which... I think, you know, diamonds are made under pressure. <laughs> so it's, it's good, but it's just looking after your, your you know, your wairua is really important and knowing that you can't be everything to everyone all the time and that's not a failure, I think. Yeah, and I think really one of the things, and Erin, you just sort of talked about it before, and that is about being Māori and what is, you know, there is there, there are so many expectations of what Māori needs to be or who you need to look like or what you and this is common conversation I had with a colleague that I had at my school and it's about sometimes being the right Māori at the right time you know it's kind of quite insulting to us Mm -hmm. actually and there is this terminology that I've heard used which I think is very apt and at times it's like a process of whitewashing where actually you are Māori but suddenly in a group of non-Māori people you become the same so therefore they don't notice you and then they will talk about Māori things 
without actually talking to you and you want to say, hey, but I'm this Māori person here. So it is that kind of, and I think it is possibly very common for many Indigenous people, that sometimes you just aren't the right Indigenous (laughs) category at that Mm. point in time. Hearing both of you speak about your research, I guess, reminded me about these ongoing conversations about research ethics relating to Indigenous people Mm. and thinking of course of decolonizing methodologies um, yeah. <laughs> I guess I wanted to ask you about your process of thinking about the ethics of your research in the context of continued overstudying of mm. indigenous people I mean I always um so maybe I'm sp- I can speak for both <laughs> always feel so grateful that we have some really prominent Māori academics who've really created space for us to be able to do research safely with Marty because I, I know that you and I have had conversations about this right but mm. always just lean back you know on all of the ethical guidelines they've set out which really makes me always feel safe in our research but from a methodological perspective it, it is really hard when you're layering in different types of methodologies and I know that people choose you know Kopapa Marty, which is the name for the research paradigm is used in a lot of different ways and like I know I'm using it in a really different way to you I think like I'm using it as my research underpinnings and then layering Mm. it to inform the ethics of my methodology but just always very grateful to those leading Māori scholars who created space for us because I don't know otherwise how I would navigate you know this area and there are some really seminal articles I just always go back to you know and cite and reference because I just feel like they always guide us so well. I'm using Māori theoretical framework and also methodology. And through my methodology chapter, I guess, you know, we are guided by, and I, these are certainly not all, but mm-hmm. some of the principles which um, are embedded within Māori, and that is tinoranga teratanga, that is the principle of self-determination. So we um, reflect that in our way of undertaking our research. So we are taking this in a way through a um, te ao Māori point of view, but also in the way in which we work with our research participants and taonga tuku iho, that is the principle of cultural aspirations. So really ensuring that um, the voices of Māori are respected and people are able to talk in a way that is comfortable and reflects who they are. And I think for the term Māori, I had research participants who are sort of aged, I had students aged from 10 to 13. So really ways of making our our students who are identified as Māori, making them feel comfortable. I had to get permission from their whānau for them to take part. Then I spoke with the children as well to make sure that they were comfortable to take part. Before I did the interviews, I spent a lot of time in their school a couple of weeks before I even started my focus wow. groups. Yeah. So, um, And this is really honouring the Māori voices that were shared with us, but honouring their whānau and honouring their tipuna. And in whānau, that's a principle of the extended family structure. So many of our whānau, their family makeup could look very different to a westernised perspective, but really just um, accepting and appreciating what people had to bring and to share. And um, I also interviewed whānau as well. I think I would also to add, when I listen to your podcast with Sue, and you know a lot of what she's saying that they do at the York Justice Commission is Quite is really similar with Kopapa Māori. You know, where it's actually the participants that we're working with have the self determination of what they want their research mm. and stories to look like, 
And, you know, even after we record them or whatever, all of it goes back to the participants, you know, and if they were to say no six months Mm. or six weeks before our PhDs were due, I would take it out. Thank you. A few episodes in and our first cross episode yeah. Erin oh <laughs> you have joined us at the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub and we are so excited to have you for the last month as you complete your PhD research as a visiting scholar could you describe your motivations for visiting the hub and your experience in NAM as a visiting scholar? Yes I, I think my motivations for visiting the hub were always that well, even from when I was really young and my grandma, um, Maureen, you know, she always used to read me picture books about the dreaming, you know, and so I think I've always felt like there was this kind of ignorance that I had about Indigenous culture in Australia and that I I didn't know a lot. And so I think for me, wanting to kind of explore another culture, it was I wanted to come here first and obviously the connections worked out that I ended up being able to come come here and work with you guys which was really awesome but you know I think my motivations were really open before I came I didn't really know what to expect and I'm very grateful to have come in contact with the hub you know and I think that sometimes these things are fate or it's the the Atua you know pushing you in in the right Mm. direction and I didn't really know you know what I was in for but kind of coming here I think I've been exposed to a lot of knowledge over the last month that has really sat with me in a very emotional way. I think, yeah, we talk about my nan a lot, but she's yeah. she's always around. And it's funny, I don't think I've felt her for a while, but I think after, you know, having, you know, hearing some of the experiences of First Nations people here in Australia, Nanny was always a very fiery and passionate woman, and I really have felt her kind of strength in, in learning about these things, her kind of be with me a lot. And you know, it has made me reflect that, you know, you guys at the hub and, and a lot of other advocates here for First Nations people are really at the forefront of all of this work. And, and there's so much emotional labour that I think a lot of people have to do, you know, and I am just kind of privileged to to have been around it and, and see it over just the last month. But there is just so many people doing such amazing work. And I think for Indigenous people as well, just everyone really wearing their heart on their sleeve, you know, which is I think has really that's something is a reflection. I think it's really, really stuck with me. And actually, as I said, I think the fate fate has brought it all together because one of the questions my supervisors have been asking me and my feedback is, where are you in this? You know, and I think after being here has really made me just, you know, you guys put all, all of who you are into your work and what you do and are across so many things. And I have realised, you know, I need to do that more and put myself into into things more. And yeah, big shout out to you guys for just welcoming me in and, and letting me learn about all of these this knowledge because it really is, there's a lot of trauma that's involved in that, but then also a lot of um, strength and solidarity, I think, with everyone at the hub and all the other intersections and the amazing people I've got to meet, you know, from going to talk at the First People's Assembly or when we did the walking tour with the Europe Justice Commission, like just... Met some amazing people who never questioned who I was. They were just like, right, you're here with the hub. That must mean you're a, you're a good person and a safe person and welcome in and they just have shared everything with me. So definitely some some learnings to take from me into my own work is to just, you know, keep being passionate and keep fighting and put who I am into what I do. Yeah, brilliant. So call out to anyone <laughs> interested in that. Come to the hub. <laughs> Ethel, you spoke to us about reconsidering some of your earlier writing in your research. Now you have spent more time thinking through the process about strength-based approaches and decolonizing approaches. 
to both of you, how has your PhD journey changed your identity and relationship with yourself? For me, I think, um, you know, when I um, I was talking about my um, original research proposal and I described myself as coming from a low socioeconomic background and um, I was just recently looking at that out as I was writing up my methodology chapter and I have been I think you know going through a process really for myself of trying to understand really how I identify and describe myself and when I saw those words yeah I guess I was like upset with myself for for describing myself in a way that I think was really a deficit theorizing approach and in fact I think that what I've been able to do is to position myself in a stronger way by acknowledging the time period that went on um, in my life as I was growing up to acknowledging uh, kaupapa Māori as a way that my mother definitely instilled within me Māori values and also a pride in being a Māori woman you know and a Māori person and I think those are the strongest elements that I have really learnt about myself through this process of just learning about kaupapa Māori and being really proud to claim being a Māori woman and uh, Māori as my cultural identity. I think for me actually what it's done is really empowered me I think that, you know, through the PhD process, you're forced to do a lot of learning and a lot of reading. And I think what it's done is given me the language to talk about things I used to feel frustrated with, but I didn't know how to talk about. So I feel like now I feel really confident to be articulate about Māori in society in New Zealand and, you know, just that the systems and structures that operate don't work for us. And I think actually it's really reaffirmed that they do have something to offer RTL Māori and I think in a really smaller way as well it's reconnected me with my marae as well I hadn't gone back there for a long time and my marae were participants in my research and it was just it felt like such a comfortable and like beautiful homecoming so I think for me it's just empowered me to speak out for our people and to understand really what went wrong and the trauma of colonization but also given me the language to talk about how we are doing really, really awesome things. And I'm, you know, grateful that I can be that person. Such important work. You are both educators. Ethel, you're a school teacher, and Erin, you're now a lecturer at University of Victoria, Wellington. Can you share with us some of the reflections in your separate context on educating for respect for First Nations peoples and understanding of Te Ao Māori within colonial education institutions? Shall I go first? Yes, Ethel, you can go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, kia ora. Um, yeah, I think some of the empowerment that I've been able to take away from my research and bring into my classroom, so I think this has been a really interesting and very organic process because my research came out of my classroom context. And then mm. through my research, I've actually been able to take that back into my classroom context and the students and whānau that I work with. I feel now when I am thinking about Kopapa Māori and how I work with students, I own that as part of who I am and it's not separate from me as a teacher. So therefore I think about critical aspects of learning, I think about our New Zealand Histories curriculum which is actually a part of what we are integrating or bringing in with a really strong and fresh approach throughout the whole of the New Zealand um, education 
curriculum anyway and think about the use of uh, legitimizing te reo Māori, thinking about place names and for example Wellington is te upoko o te ika a Māori and sharing those stories with our students and learning about local iwi, also thinking just about how Māori view children and um, characteristics from a, uh, a Māori framework which was being designed by uh, Dr Leslie Ramika. So Māori was really, I guess, like an atua or a god for Māori and we look at his characteristics. So characteristics of rangatiratanga, being a leader, thinking about children's determination, whakatoi, which is also thinking about cheekiness and curiosity. Mm -hmm. So these were characteristics that we have learned about Maui through various stories that are shared about him. But I, when I think of my students, I think about those particular characteristics, whether they're Maori or non-Maori, and how does that look? And so I think that brings a Māori perspective into my teaching practice and pedagogy and how I approach learning. I guess I have a few kind of examples. I think one of the most powerful ones, actually, and I didn't realise what a difference this would make is when I was um, tutoring, it was a third-year paper, and, you know, I always make sure it's really important that I do my pipiha. I, I talk about, like, my teaching philosophy, which is always that I'm not smarter than anyone else. I've just been at university longer. And I got this email um, at the end of that trimester from one of our Māori students. And he just, he'll know who he is if he listens to this, but he just sent me the most beautiful email saying that he felt really grateful to be in a room with someone else that was Māori and he hadn't had any other Māori tutors or lecturers. Mm -hmm. And that made him feel like he could be himself in the room, you know, and it made me really realise the importance of in these colonial spaces, being ourselves and, and small things like doing your pipiha, sharing a bit about yourself, using Māori examples makes a big difference to our students because it means they can see themselves in those positions, mm. you know, I think it's that you can be what you can see. So I think, you know, from a, a student perspective, that's really important. And, you know, that's <laughs> sounding cheesy. They're definitely the future, you know, because I think a lot of the time, whilst we're in academic institutions, without being too critical, a lot of academics um, forget to keep learning about things that aren't in their space. Like, for example, at the end of our your candidature in the first year, you do a presentation to your school. And I was really lucky because I had like 50 or 60 people come and I always try have to try and explain succinctly the history of colonization and the Treaty of Waitangi as the context for my study and um, a few of the comments people made after was like wow that was really interesting I didn't know about that you know and you're I'm sitting here thinking how do these people not know how have I taught them something about the treaty you know so mm -hmm. it's just those those reflections but yeah I think it's um always really important to show our students because you know, we don't know what they bring into the room either. And with this one student, I just hadn't really anticipated what a difference that would make, you know, on him. And I, I do think, I, you know, I'm working with some amazing colleagues and I'm really fortunate that at my school, I have Dr. Ben Walker and Dr. Jisarini, who's my supervisor, as two other Māori, we're the mm. three Māori academics in the business. Oh no, there's four or five of us, but three in one school. Mm. So I'm really supported and I just try and infiltrate everywhere uh, but I, the, the academics of my school are amazing too though and just let me do that but those are some of the reflections that I've had is that our students need to need to see us celebrating yeah. Indigenous knowledge more I think I mean I don't know if this happens in other contexts but I get asked all the time are you comparing Māori governance to Western governance you know there's a lot of this I'm not sure if it happens here too but a lot of back home and in, in business um, scholarship 
people wanting to use West, well, you know, business frameworks with a Western bias to compare or almost like legitimize Māori knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. and I just, I think that's one thing I'm really trying to be really clear with in my PhD and when any other Māori students do research is that it is research on its own, tikanga, protocols and colour, the law of that marae, they are just as legitimate as the 11 principles of good governance, you know, set out by institute mm. directors. And we don't need to compare it to that to show how it's the same because it's not the same. It's just governance in a te ao Māori way. So it's a bit all over the place, but there's, um, yeah, some of the reflections I've had with the students and academic staff, but, yeah. I just add on, like, even in my context in a primary school, mm-hmm. we have very few Māori educators. Yeah. So like Erin says, I think what's really, really critical and cool is that we have more Indigenous teachers, we have more Indigenous academics, so that our students can see themselves. Because I think, Erin, you said you can be what you see. Yeah, well, I think, sorry, I've got a stat to throw that way. Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> while Māori yeah. make up 14% of the population in New Zealand... Actually, only, I think, 2% of that 14% hold an undergraduate degree. And then below that, only a 0.7% hold a postgraduate degree in, mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form. And I know that in the in the business school, we're struggling for postgraduate students anyway, but it's, you know, we really need to, to get more Indigenous knowledge coming through. Well, to... that's a great link to the next question <laughs> is, in your experience as educators and as students, what should universities be doing to support First Nations students to continue to strengthen the academy with First Nations knowledges? Yeah, I think firstly, and, and I will say that my head of school, I have to give him a shout out, Dr <laughs> Todd Bridgman is amazing for this. I think that the academics themselves need to be really supported and Probably, as you guys experience at the hub, you know, you are just being, I feel like, such dry a lot of the time with requests on what, what you need to do and not do. And I, you know, even as an early career um, academic, I can see how you get burnt out. And so I think it's about the academic institutions actually providing us with support and mentorship to be mm-hmm. able to, because I think as Indigenous people, you know, we want to contribute and say yes to everything because. Mm-hmm. It's, we're not driven by our individualistic needs. You want to help. And so, but, you know, as we know in the research, there's a lot of burnout in um, academia with Indigenous researchers. So I think the institutions need to support us a lot better <laughs> and provide mentorship into those kind of spaces. But again, I think it always comes back to just everyone needs to do, including the academics, need to do their research and not use the... Uh, this was coined in a um, journal article recently, not use the dial of Māori. It's even things like, you know, educating themselves and then asking us to come into the room. Like, I would much prefer that than just, you know, Erin's here, she can guess do that. Lecture. Yeah, guest yeah. lecture, yeah. And I think those are probably really important things. I mean, it is a minefield working as an Indigenous person in a colonial institution all the time, but I think another thing that I like just enjoyed immensely about the hub is I think for Indigenous people we need connection you know we're so used to working in a collective and soundboarding and relationships are just important like a priority above everything and I think a lot of the times sometimes I feel like that's what I've missed but we have power in our Māori and Indigenous network don't we in our my network back home but I think just acknowledging that for Indigenous people organizing things and publishing things just to get it um, ahead on the career ladder is not always what we want either, which yeah. 
You know, Erin just mentioned uh, our Māori and Indigenous Scholars Network and again I want to acknowledge really Graham Hinginawa-Smith and Linda Tuiwai-Smith because I'm pretty sure that they were actually at the forefront with a few other Māori academics at that time who got this network set up. Mm -hmm. And Erin also talked about how much she loved being here and I think being part of community. And I've written down Whakawhanaunatanga because really that is about building relationships and I think from an Indigenous perspective we are I'd like to think this is all of human nature, but I'm, I don't think that it necessarily is. I mean, I think that we have a desire to be a part of a community, to be part of a group. And I think that that is really critical, actually, for developing relationships in an academic, certainly as a primary school teacher, that is really at the forefront of our learning, and that's building those learning relationships. But I also believe that's equally as important in an academic institution as well, because it is about valuing the knowledge that people bring. But in order for you, you really have to know what it is that they bring. What is it about them that is unique? What is their story to tell? And based in a cultural context, I think many of the challenges that I see and that I've experienced myself at times is ensuring that I know what my connections are. And sometimes I don't, but um, I always have this belief and it's something that my mother always said to me is that it's really important to know who you are, where you are from and who your family are. That's not always easy for people to know that. And so always it's enough to be Māori. If you say you are Māori, then we accept that. And people's journey to find out, like, that's part of our responsibility. I want to share this little whakatauki. Um, So it is a proverb, and it is a proverb that I have embedded in my research proposal. So it's, Poi poia te kakunoa kia pūwai, nurture the seed and it will bloom. And I think that that is our responsibility as educators, whether you're at university or at primary school, really, is to find that that spark. And you referred to the spark quite a few times in your corridor today. And that spark, really, it is that little fire that lights. And I think it can happen at any age. Thank you so much to our guests, Erin and Ethel, for sharing so generously on this episode of White Noise. I hope you've got something out of the conversation today and we'd love to hear from you. You can find the transcript and show notes on our website. I'll now hand back to Erin who'll finish with some words. Oh yeah, so I'm going to finish us off with a karakia. So a karakia means like prayer or incantation and I think now in Te Māori there's kind of you know, through colonisation. <laughs> There's kind of two types, but the one that we're going to talk about today is, I don't know how to describe it in English, is always just to for us to close the session and finish the energy really, really well and set us off yeah. for the day. So, um, he karakia whakamutunga, kia hora te marino, kia whakapapa ponamu te moana, hei huarahi mā tātou i te rangi nei, aroha atu, aroha mai, Tato ia tato katoa huie taikie. And in English, it's translated to May peace be widespread, may the sea be like greenstone, a pathway for us all this day. Let us show respect for each other, for one and another, bind us all together. Basic human rights. 
Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Nice. 